Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Start now. I'm being recorded now. No more silliness. Um, let's uh, just pray briefly. Um, Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the glorious day that it is. Thank you that you love us today as you always do and your heart is towards us and for us. I just pray that we'd be aware of your presence this morning, God, and your heart of love and goodness and kindness towards us. Amen. <laughs> so, um, the last few weeks, I haven't heard any of the messages, but I have listened to them this week. Very uh, much thanks to Luke, who sent me the messages to listen to. Um, and so we've been talking about uh, Church in the Dirt, which you probably are aware of if you have been listening to the messages. Um, the idea, if you haven't heard, I'm going to recap this very briefly. Steve talked about um, the woman caught in adultery in, in the New Testament, and Jesus his approach to her was to get down in the dirt with her so he didn't stand in judgment didn't stand over her like the pharisees were um he certainly didn't get involved with stoning her um but he made himself vulnerable he got down there he made himself vulnerable to the physical attack but also to being associated with her in that situation but that didn't bother him um his his heart was to see her restored and forgiven um and not to um judge her <clears throat> so uh, that's what he talked about and then Sai carried on from that um, and talked about our need as a church, this church and church as a whole to not be abstract about our approach to being the church in the dirt not just have it as being ideas or plans um, or just messages on a Sunday morning um, but actually to physically do it and he talked about Saul's conversion um, and how there was like a, a whole process and a series of, of real concrete events that happened to Paul that led to his conversion. You know, him meeting Jesus on the road, having that vision, um, and then going away. And then, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that God sent to come, and, to come and speak to him and to prophesy to him and to see him healed. You know, these were real people um, involving, you know, physical actions, physical touch, combined with the kind of prophetic message that was behind it all but it's, it was vital that those physical things happened as well um, so Jesus' approach in all of those situations um, was not one of judgement um, it was one of mercy and grace in every situation and uh, he had that approach to the outsiders to the disregarded, to the sinner the woman, of, woman caught in adultery but also to the powerful and the feared so at every end of the spectrum, it was always that attitude. Um, <clears throat> so we're familiar with being a church in the dirt. I think as a, as a community, it's been a focus for us, for us, as far as I'm aware, for a reasonable amount of time like since, since rejoining this church. Um, working with the homeless and the stuff we do with um, giving to the poor um, and the VIP event that we're currently working towards at the moment. So it you know, broadly comes under the umbrella of social action. Um, but from an outsider's perspective, um, it can be seen as something that's not very spiritual, necessarily. Um, be- 
because it, it is mostly that the, the physical things that we're doing are very kind of human. They're kind, but they're not necessarily not necessarily Christian. Um, a lot of it, I think, are things that a Christian could do, a non-Christian could do, sorry, and very successfully, and probably and do do. Um, um, and the fact that they do it without God or without Jesus doesn't make it any worse. If they're doing it in love, then as far as I believe, they are doing it with God. They just might not be aware of it because yeah. God is love. Um, but but there is more to it in our approach to it. Um, as we, as we find in the story with the woman caught in adultery and with Saul's conversion, there's more than just the physical action. That That is really important and that's vital, but there's also more to it than that. Um, thinking back to my own kind of Christian upbringing, and a lot of you might share similar, fe- uh, <clears throat> similar histories, we did very little social action. Um, we maybe talked about it a little bit every now and then, but mainly church was kind of a detached sort of alien gathering uh, not of literal aliens but you know um, like alienated from the community that they were in um, a lot of the time um, full of a lot of ideas and strong opinions about stuff but very little actual action and that really defined my Christian upbringing um, if we did outreach or what, what we called outreach it would consist of maybe handing out some tracts um, maybe singing some worship songs in public um, <clears throat> at the very extreme end maybe knocking on some doors and kind of employing salesman like tactics to try and trick them into a conversation about God um, which generally people weren't particularly interested in um, which you know sounds really negative it wasn't all bad some of it I'm sure had some positive impact but reflecting on it it feels like for me at least we, we were more concerned about kind of discharging our need to feel like we were doing something holy than actually wanting to meet the needs of these people. There wasn't, it wasn't really born out of a heart of love for them. It was um, yeah, motivated by something else, I think, for me. I'll just take it all on myself. It wasn't the rest of the church. Um, so it feels like there's kind of a spectrum of like, you know, the kind of super spiritual approach of, you know, we'll, we'll do a prayer walk around the city, but actually... You know, for the homeless people in the city, they're just like, "What on earth are you doing?" This doesn't actually ha- help us in any way. And then you've got the other end of like of feeding the homeless, but actually, it can potentially have no no reference to God. You can completely forget about God being involved in that situation. Um, and and I feel like there's there's a balance where where both are um, needed. Yeah. Um, there's a famous quote from St. Francis of Assisi that said, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and use words if necessary, which you've probably heard. Um, but it's not actually a quote from St. Francis of Assisi. It's one of those that gets attributed to him, but no one actually knows who originally said it. Because the truth is, St. Francis was a preacher, and, and a really good preacher, and he talked a lot as well as using deeds. So he always did both in his ministry. Um, so you can kind of see where I'm going. There's this a kind of sense of there's a danger that if you're one or the other end, the extreme of this spectrum, um, that you can miss something really important. That at the social action end, it needs to have the spiritual end. Not that that is in some way like separate or disconnected, but actually it needs to be ingrained within it. And at the spiritual end, there needs to be a real physical, concrete outworking of that as well. Um, otherwise, there's always going to be something missing because people need to be helped. 
physically, but also they need to be helped inside. That you know, the whole process of salvation is like an internal remaking, an undoing, and a healing. Uh, rebirth is what Jesus calls it. Um, so if we don't have that, then there's something vital missing from the experience. <clears throat> but coming back to the social action end of it, um, we've been a few of us have been reading a book by Richard Beck. Um, I don't know how many in this room have, have been reading it. Um, I've finished it. No, you know, not because I'm like <laughs> any better than anyone else. But oh yeah, I tend to listen to books rather than read them. Um, so uh, I read the Richard Beck Beck book using the auto um, speech on on an iPad. I don't know if anyone's tried to read a book that way. It's a little bit odd. It sounds like slightly robotic, but you kind of get used to it. Um, and then and some some bits, if I thought it was really interesting, I'd go back and read with my eyes when I wasn't feeling particularly lazy. Um, but the book's called Reviving Old Scratch. Um, and Old Scratch is a term uh, for the devil that they use in the American South, I think. Um, I've never heard of it before, but he... The, the principle of the book is for people, for Christians that are at what I would say the social action end of the spectrum who have become, he says, disenchanted i.e. they've kind of lost sight of the spiritual end of the spectrum um, and, and they're struggling to remake that connection because it has stopped making sense to them to some degree. But, you know, The social action sense, end of the spectrum makes a lot of sense to us. We can see the physical results of helping people, feeding people, that sort of thing. Um, but then the spiritual end of it is is harder to make sense of sometimes. Um, he and the, he got himself into that position, um, and he uh, studied a master's degree in psychology, and then he worked for four years in a psychiatric hospital um, where he saw a lot of pretty extreme um, suffering of people dealing with uh, really serious cases of mental illness, um, and that. That experience is what kind of caused his faith of the spiritual end to falter. Uh, he continued to give to the patients, you know, he continued to work there and to be sacrificial in the way he loved them. Um, but I'll just read you a, a quote uh, from his book that kind of sums up how the process in his mind it says this The fight for social justice exposes us to the pain and suffering of the world, and that exposure can take a heavy toll upon our faith. Compassion for the suffering of the world draws us deeper into the darkness of the world, a world of sex trafficking, rape, torture, genocide, child abuse and starvation. And in the face of that massive and soul-crushing suffering, a compassionate person has to ask, why would a good, loving and all-powerful God allow this? There's a sad irony here how a compassionate faith places a heavy burden upon our faith. The greater our compassion for suffering, the greater our doubts as we face that suffering. I found it um, just a really kind of powerful explanation of where I think a lot of us probably feel like we're at at times. Um, and I know that I, I found myself and do find myself in that place often. Um, just recently, um, you know, to look at some examples, we heard uh, about terrorist bombing in Sri Lanka um, on Easter Sunday. Um, the six bombs 
three in churches and three in hotels. And one of the hotels, um, the Cinnamon Grand in Colombo, the capital there, was where Lizzie and I actually stayed for our honeymoon back in 2008, which always kind of makes it feel a bit more yeah. personal when you, you know the place, you know, I remember what the hall looked like and the restaurant that we would have been sat in had it been a different year, different time. Um, 253 people were killed. Men, women, children, rich, poor, locals, international tourists. There's no you know, discernment between the type of people that suffered from the attack. And the question, as often is the question with this kind of thing, is what, what do we do? What is our response? Most of us feel some sense of empathy and compassion, um, but at the same time we're a bit at a loss. Um, physically there's very little we can do in this situation you know, we can't wind back the hands of time there's no big need for money really in that situation um, there's no long-term ongoing requirement for lots of volunteers um, so you know we can do little things but really the, the big factor is is the loss and the grief of the families who've lost people um, and what they need is communities around them uh, to help them um, <clears throat> but in that kind of search in that sense of futility we do find ourselves asking, questioning God. Um, why, why would God allow this to happen? Or maybe it's just why. You know, maybe we don't turn it on God because we've learned not to do that. But um, the question is still there. Sometimes we might even try and formulate answers. Um, and particularly if it's something that's been caused by man, as in this situation, like terrorism, we cope with it a bit easier, I think, because we think, well, you know, it's evil people, it's not God that did this. Um, it doesn't make the suffering any less, uh, but it makes it, we process it in, in a slightly easier way. But if we look at another example, same country 15 years ago, um, on Boxing Day, uh, there was the Indian Ocean tsunami. And does anyone know how many people were killed in that disaster? So two. 253 people were killed in the bombing. 228,000 people were killed in the Boxing Day tsunami. And 35,000 of those were in Sri Lanka. Which, I mean, the scale of that is just kind of incomprehensible. And again, you know, at that time, and even now as we think back at it, and, you know, the effects of that remain in, in a lot of places. Um, what is our response? How do we respond to that um, you know, we can give money, we can volunteer to that because there's a whole process of rebuilding. But there's still a sense of like impotence that there's nothing we can do to undo what has happened there. And again, we perhaps question God. And it's, a, and it's less easy to rationalise. You know, no one, no person caused this. No one deserved this. Um, this is the earth behaving in a way that uh, no one would want and no one would expect. Um, and that kind of questioning has been wrestled with for centuries in the Christian tradition and in a lot of religions in fact um, there's a lot of varied explanations and it's a massive stumbling block for a lot of people um, in my experience it's the most frequent excuse for unbelief if you're speaking to non-Christians you know the problem of pain the problem of suffering is the kind of fallback that's uh, very difficult to argue with it's kind of ironic as Beck says that you know 
people that begin on the Christian path or that are walking down the Christian path because of a sense of compassion and kindness would then end up leaving the same path because of that same compassion but of the questions that it's led them to. Um, so there's a lot of theories that attempt to answer this question or to explain it or give some sort of response um, and they are they come under the umbrella of theodicy that's the, the term for it um, which you might have heard of um, I had intended today <laughs> to give you an, of, an overview of theodicies um, but I realised very quickly that I was uh, being a bit ambitious because it's you know millennia of theories that have been developed by people much more intelligent than me uh, and much more um, learned so I can't really do that Um, if you do want a more much more articulate and intelligent overview than I could give you I can recommend a book by David Bentley Hart called The Doors of the Sea which he wrote in response specifically to the Sri Lanka uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami tragedy back in 2004 um but I'm still going to give you my view on uh, my experience of Christians um, and Christianity and the various ways that different people think of theodicy, of explaining the problem of suffering, most of which you'll be familiar with, most of which, for me, I have believed, whether or not consciously or not, um, at some point, and probably still slip in and out of at various times subconsciously without really meaning to. Um, So, the question is, why would a loving God allow suffering? I'm not asking people to put their hands up, because it would be um, quite a distracting array of answers, I'm sure. Hopefully, I'll give answers that most of you will be familiar with. So, the first um, proposal is that this is the judgment of God. So, some would say that this is God's hand at work, God's righteous judgment, anger um, at the sin of people, So he sends a disaster or destruction to punish people, effectively. Um, And you can find support for that kind of view in the Old Testament, um, if you want to, uh, where the language often seems to suggest that God causes various calamities to come upon those he wishes to teach a lesson to. Um, The problem with it, though, thank goodness there's a problem with it, um, (laughs) is that it's not really compatible with Jesus. Um, Jesus, who is... God doesn't punish people to teach a lesson, as you know, as we've just found in the last couple of weeks. You know, with the woman caught in adultery, he doesn't get involved with the stoning. He does the opposite. He makes himself vulnerable. And Jesus is God revealed to us. So he doesn't look like an angry, punishing God. Um, in fact, the Pharisees do. And probably they look that way because they're mimicking the God that they believe in, yeah. the, the, who they think God looks like. Um, but Jesus actually comes and says, no, this is what good look, God looks like. Um, and it, in Sai's message with Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, Jesus meets him on the road and he's not angry with him. He doesn't, he's not violent towards him. Um, he speaks to him and calls him to a better way. Um, you know, yes, Saul is temporarily blinded. You know, is, that, is Jesus doing something that's a bit dodgy there? Um, or could it just be the natural response of darkened eyes to infinite light that creates this blindness? Um, Jesus' work is to see him restored and healed. He takes the bad situation of a toxic heart, a violent spirit, and brings about grace and healing. So, in my mind, 
the righteous judgment argument just doesn't work when we look at Jesus. Um, so that's that one. Uh, the second uh, proposal is that God is just indifferent. Um, so this is quite rare, probably in Christ- in Christianity. Uh, it's more true, perhaps, of other uh, more ancient religions, but. Um, some would say that God is just not involved, that he's passive, um, that he's created and then spends the rest of eternity chilling out on a cloud, eating grapes with some angel babes, whatever he does. Um, but uh, I don't think many Christians would consciously believe this because clearly God is involved. You know, He came as Jesus. He's very involved. Um, if, if you believe that, if you're a Christian, then you must believe that. And so you can't believe that he's, not, that he's indifferent. But I still think it's possible for us to kind of sub- subconsciously drift. And I think that this can happen particularly maybe at the social action end of the spectrum where you don't necessarily make a decision to decide, I think God is indifferent to all of this, but you just kind of forget about involving God in your thought processes, in your intentions, in, the, in your reasons for doing things. And actually then God becomes the indifferent God in the way you do things. Um, but thankfully when we do think about it we, we, we find we realise that that isn't the case um, Jesus revealed God as a loving father um, he's intimate with us and that's his heart the third proposal is that God has some bigger grand plan and that that's the reason for this suffering um, so this relies quite a bit on a particular take on the sovereignty of God um, and Basically, the the sufferings that we experience and that we witness are necessary evils to get us from the fall after creation back to a restored point. That they are kind of teaching us lessons, um, that we're learning right from wrong, that we're learning the contrast between uh, you know good and evil and suffering and health. Um, we might not understand the process. You know, we might question and say, "Why does this have to happen?" But God's ways are higher than our ways. We just have to trust the process and you know, eventually we'll get to this great and glorious end. Um, this is much more common. Um, maybe some people in this room hold this view or have held this view. Um, and it's a lot trickier to contest uh, because even in the life of Jesus, there does seem to be this pattern or journey. You know, he's, There's these miracles and everything seems to lead towards his crucifixion, which is suffering um, and resurrection. And the people around him suffer as a result of being with him, um, and then and then afterwards his disciples suffer as a as a result of being his disciples. Um, there's a there's a verse um, in John nine. If you want to turn there, if you've got Bibles, you don't don't have to. Um, I'm not going to call anyone out for not having a physical Bible. Mine's, mine's digital. Um, People found it. A short coffee break. Um, so John 9, verse 1, says, And as, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the man with the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So he was healed. So in that passage, actually you can see a few versions of theodicy. So the disciples are kind of saying, Who sinned, this man or his parents? So they're assuming that actually he's blind because of his sin. So that's the judgment version of God. Um, But Jesus' answer says no. Neither this man or his parents sinned, so it's not about sin. Good, so we can put that one away. But that the works of God should be revealed. So now this, this is tricky, because this could suggest, actually, that this is about the, great, the grander plan. Um, that, that the reason he was blind is so that uh, God can heal him and you know, reveal his works. Um, it could be saying that. The language kind of allows that interpretation. Or it could be interpreted differently, that he's not saying that at all. He's just saying that he's going to be healed. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not answering the question, as Jesus often did, not answer the question with a straight answer. But he's just saying, forget about that, he's going to be healed. Um, so it doesn't give us a real kind of clear steer, and it could work in, in various ways. But I think when we think about it logically and also look at the rest of Jesus' life, the answer does become clear because, first of all, what Jesus does next is heal the man. Um, so clearly his heart, God's heart, is towards healing, not towards suffering. And it would be very weird for God to have made him blind to then heal him for the show of it. It seems quite perverse and man- manipulative. It doesn't really make sense in the context of free will. Um, to give us free will but then manipulate events only to kind of coerce us into obedience the very nature and essence of love is rooted in vulnerability that makes room for us to fail and turn away so it would be against all of that Um, so to believe that way seems to undo a lot of other things about what we would say we believe about God Um, it's very difficult to make sense of there's also a really significant objection um, to this view of God of this grander plan which I find quite powerful um, which is that the suffering involved in all of human history is not worth any conceivable end so whatever this grand plan is however glorious it is it's not worth it and if we think that how could God think that it is it's almost like it's a bit of an, an unusual way of arguing it but you know, we are kind of finite, imperfect beings, but we're saying actually, you know, it doesn't matter how good this end plan is, um, it's not worth all of this suffering. If, if, if this suffering is necessary, if this is part of the plan, this doesn't make sense. Um, so there's a novel um, called The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, um, which I have read, props to me. Um, actually no I've listened to it I've not read it I've been lazy again and I think Sai's read it as well it's a really fantastic book if you uh, have the time it's very long Um, but it's a tale of three brothers who are all Christian kind of uh, 18th century Russian Christians Um, is it 18th century? something like that a long time ago hundreds of years ago Um, but these three brothers are all in very different places spiritually and at one point, one of the brothers, called Ivan, 
has a rant at his brother Alyosha um, and Alyosha is like a priest basically um, and he has a rant at him about this very issue this kind of this view of theodicy um, and in his rant <clears throat> he gives some examples of suffering to prove his point that suffering isn't worth the end um, all of which are actually real-life stories which the author, Dostoevsky, had researched from newspapers at that time. Um, so one of them, I'm going to tell you a couple of them to prove a point here, um, is a five-year-old girl who uh, lived with cultivated, well-educated, well-respected parents, but they liked to beat her for no reason um, until her whole body was basically just one bruise. Um, and then... Uh, she messed the bed at night and as punishment they smeared her face with the excrement and filled her mouth with it and then locked her in an outdoor toilet in the freezing cold Russian winter. Um, and Ivan in the story describes her kind of imagining her tears as a five-year-old, not resentful, just kind of innocently confused, asking God, why is this happening? In another story, um, he tells a, of a wealthy estate owner who has kennels full of hundreds of dogs uh, for his hunting. And one day, one of the servant's children, who's eight years old, accidentally hurts a dog's paw by throwing a stone. Um, the owner takes the boy from his mother and locks him up for the night. And then in the morning, brings him out in front of his mother and all of his huntsmen, has him stripped naked and commands him to run. And then he sets his hounds to chase him, uh, who catch him and tear him apart in front of his mum. And he tells other worse stories than that, and all of them are true. Uh, things that happened on this earth, and things still happen like this all the time. And his argument is, you could pick just one of those stories, and I would say that I don't care what this glorious end could possibly be. It's not worth the suffering of that five-year-old. If, it's, if it has to be part of the plan, um, he doesn't want any part of it. And I, I feel like I'm inclined to agree, um, not to be self-righteous about it, but because it's important to, that we recognise that we all have our own part to play in these kind of sufferings. Um, and I don't want something. I don't want something that's purchased by the suffering of a five-year-old child. You know, I don't want any part in that. There has to be some other explanation. Um, so that's my reason for not agreeing with that, that view of God. Or part of my reason. Um, so the fourth explanation, and this is the last one, the one that I do agree with, um, which is this, this is God's, God's love and freedom. In this version, God is good. God is love. God doesn't cause suffering of children God suffers with them. Um, God doesn't create the tsunami that kills hundreds of thousands. Uh, he, he weeps with sorrow just like we do for the loss. God in this picture is love and has created us in an expression of that love. But love by its nature is free and so we are also free. Uh, we're free to love but we're also free not to. The story of the fall in Genesis tells us of this kind of cataclysm this event of choosing not to love but choosing our own way um, and that choice brings separation and corruption 
not just to us into our decision making but to all of creation it affects all of creation that's what we that's what we read in genesis um and so then we have this situation where from there on you've got the devil the principalities and powers who are these kind of personifications of this evil um whatever you perceive them to be they they do have a foothold on this earth through our choice to turn from god it's not that god caused any of that or created any of that but there was always this there was always room for us to disobey and for not love an absence of love to exist although you could argue that it doesn't exist it's just a, it's a lack of existence if you wanted to get technical um and so uh the earth and mankind in it remains subject to that frustration you know we, we have this kind of language in the new testament that all creation waits for the revealing of the sons of glory that it's subject to frustration that there's something not right about the current state of affairs um and the fact that it's not right tells us that it's not the way that god would intend it to be this isn't part of his grand plan this is this is something that he has dealt with but it wasn't his plan that had to be there in order to get to some glorious end goal um set against this god in christ has made a way for it to be reconciled he's he's made a way for rebirth for healing um, and he's done the work to restore it but he's still love and so we can still continue to reject him and we can still remain obstinate regardless of that option being open to us and that's where i think it comes back to the beck book so you know god in that god in that picture isn't causing any of those things to happen um but those things do happen because we live in that world that's in that state um but god in that picture is trying and has made a way and has done the work of restoring it <clears throat> but but he's not forcing that restoration on us still because there's still that freedom there's still that openness for us to continue to reject him and, it, and it's not just us personally it's the whole earth that's affected by that um so in, in the beck book uh, he spends a lot of time redefining our understanding of spiritual warfare um and it's strongly connected i think with this understanding of god's position in suffering because if we have this if we have a, a twisted view of god's role in suffering then we continually come into this roadblock of compassion leading to doubt leading to us not understanding and contaminating and taking the you know pulling the rug out from our our faith um we have we have this god-given compassion for love and for people and we're willing for it to be gritty and dirty and to get down and be the church in the dirt um and it has to be that way if it's going to come close to identifying with suffering and and being Christ to those people and we're called to work it out in those real ways not just in abstract ideas but in doing so we can find ourselves undone by that suffering it does bring doubts to the surface and you know no amount of learning or teaching or you know even this message this morning even if it has helped our understanding it's not going to stop us from doubting next week next month uh, we have to keep returning and reminding ourselves of who god is um god isn't the one hammering the nails into the cross he's the one receiving them into his hands he isn't the erector of the cross he's the one hanging on it let's be mindful of that he is he's with us and he's in us 
um, and he's working to restore all things through us. And our spiritual warfare is that. It is, it is the undoing of this corruption. It's the reconciliation of people and this earth and the restoration of the corrupt system, standing up for love and for what is good. In all of that, we can't stop. We might not be able to stop. I shouldn't say can't because, you know, the, the, the power of the language in the New Testament actually says that maybe we can stop a tsunami. Um, my faith isn't at that level at this stage, but I won't deny what the New Testament tells us. Um, but we can comfort those who mourn and we can help rebuild what's been lost. We can make a stand for voting for and supporting policies which care for our planet rather than exploit it. And we can do the same directly in the way we use resources. Um, you know, Jesus says that he'll make all things new. But I don't think that means we get a license to abuse the world until he comes back. I think actually he has proven and shown that he works through us. And so I think we're called to be part of that restoration, part of that making, making things new. We, we can't turn back the hands of time to prevent the bombings in Sri Lanka, but we can love our neighbour right here and now. Someone somewhere was a neighbour to those bombers. And we're all neighbours to people whose lives every day can change direction for better or worse. And by loving them, we can, we can help them onto the right path. There's people all, all around us who are in the dirt um, and Jesus leading by example is already there with them and he's asking, them, asking us to join him with them too. And that is all I have to say today. So, so just going uh, to pray uh, just to finish. So Jesus, thank you for the revelation of your heart, of you as a loving God, as a God full of kindness who wants to restore and to heal and not I believe a God of judgment and punishment and violence and I pray that as we seek to extend your heart to people as to be a church in the dirt with people that you would help us to remain mindful of that view of who you are that you are not the one inflicting or afflicting people but you're the one there with them co-suffering God and that we're called to be part of that too Amen Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank you.